Hello, I'm Rachel Zucker, and this is episode 42 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I met with Gabrielle Calvacaresi in my apartment on October 20th. I read Gabrielle's third book, Rocket Fantastic, over the summer, and holy wow, is it an amazing, amazing book. If you haven't read it yet, you're in for a real treat. In addition to Rocket Fantastic, Gabrielle Calvacaresi is the author of The Last Time I Saw Amelia Earhart, An Apocalyptic Swing. Gabrielle has won numerous prizes and awards, including a Stegner Fellowship, a Jones Lectureship, and a Lanon Residency. We talk throughout the episode about wanting things and about envy. And later in the conversation, we talk a lot about the problematic prize and fellowship system in poetry. Gabrielle is an editor-at-large at the Los Angeles Review of Books and co-curates the digital makerspace Voluble. She is working on a memoir entitled The Year I Didn't Kill Myself and a novel, The Alderman of the Graveyard. Currently, she teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I met with Gabrielle the day after she had read at NYU with her friends, poets Adrian Matika and Dana Levin. Although Gabrielle and I had never spent time together and had only met in person the night before, there was an immediate connection between us. This feeling of intimacy deepened as the conversation went on, and even though this is the longest episode of Commonplace to date, it was truly very hard to stop. Gabby and I started off by talking about seasonal cleanses and intermittent fasting, which each of us had tried and were currently doing, and the psychological effects of changing what one eats and how and when. Even though that part of the conversation was utterly fascinating to me, I've cut most of the details of the different cleanses and philosophies around them and just kept the end of the conversation, which leads into the larger theme of wanting things, that is one of the threads that runs throughout this episode. Gabby and I also talk about gender, sex, religion, God, nystagmus, gayness, queerness, a symbol that she uses in Rocket Fantastic instead of a gendered pronoun, how she reads that symbol, and so much more. I haven't experienced this before or since, but there were several electromagnetic disturbances during this conversation. There was a buzzing, a hum, flickering lights, and at two points, my computer went a little crazy, and then once, something fell rather dramatically and without visible cause right behind me. It was as if there were ghosts or spirits in the room with us, or as if the charge between us was affecting the physical world. We have some fabulous patron prizes and extras for this episode. Patrons will be entered in a raffle that includes three signed copies of Rocket Fantastic, signed by Gabrielle Calvacaresi, of course, and copies of Lorene Niedeker's Collected Works. Many thanks to Gabby for providing these copies and to Persia for publishing this great book and to the University of California Press for the Niedeker book. Patrons will also get access to Gabby reading another poem from Rocket Fantastic, two limited edition broadsides, and two poetry tea dates via phone or in person if Gabby is in your town. You can discuss your poems, do some writing, talk about other poems with Gabby. Thank you so much, Gabby, for this amazing generosity to Commonplace and our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, publishers. Thank you, listeners. 
As a special extra thank you, I've included a download free for patrons of my mother telling Hans Christian Andersen stories, including a track of me as a kid singing a song, which I talk about at the end of this episode. Visit commonpodcast.com for links to the people and texts Gabrielle and I mention and to find out how to become a patron of the show. Also on our website, under merch, you can purchase a Commonplace t-shirt or tote bag, a great gift for the favorite listeners in your life. Making Commonplace is a joyful labor. It's an honor to talk with poets who are dear friends and an honor to talk with poets I've never met before. An honor to learn about people's writing and lives and to let these words inside as I listen and re-listen to these conversations. What a thrill it was to see Eleanor Smagarinsky, a commonplace patron who showed up to hear me read with Shane McRae at the KGB bar last week. Eleanor was visiting New York from Australia. It's a pleasure to get all of your emails and tweets and messages of supports and appreciation, and a true delight to work with my three commonplace producers, Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, and James Ciano. Every day, I wake up to some new or intractably old political insanity in this godforsaken country, some natural or man-made or personal disaster, people acting badly, murderously, greedily, thoughtlessly, unconscionably. I am so grateful to also have moments of joy and hopefulness. Many of these moments come often when I am in the presence of my children and my students and radical, world-changing artists like the ones on Commonplace, and when I'm working on this podcast. Thank you all for making this possible. And now, here's my conversation with my new friend, the talented, kind, candid, wonderful, Gabrielle Calvacaresi. Would I really want to not crave things? Like that's an emotional experience that... And food does mean something. I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, I think about it in terms of my work and all kinds of things, but like, and just being in the world, but like, and I've been actually talking about it a lot in interviews, like it's okay to want things. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so there is something because like this cleanse is like this clean program and a lot of our friends in LA had done it. That is somehow about like not wanting things and like I think it's fine to want things and to like figure out the balance of what it is to want and not like destroy the earth yeah if that makes sense yeah know? yeah you know I think it's so fascinating this is like it's like I can't believe we started already yeah <laughs> we just went right yeah. for it but I do think it's like you know like last night um so I, it was really such a pleasure to hear you read. It was so fun last night. It was really fun. And I get so freaked out to read in New York, but really? it was really fun. Yeah. New York in particular? Yeah, I think I do. I think I get, I mean, I always get like a little bit nervous, but um, I was just, I was just in the park with a former student from UNC who's now at Columbia, hmm. Coco Wilder. She's a wonderful poet. And we were talking about like New York and living in New York or not living in New York. And I was saying that I love New York. I love to come here. I, you know, I went to Columbia. I went to Sarah Lawrence for my undergrad. I also like, I somehow knew inside myself that I couldn't 
live here. Like when I got the Stegner, part of it was also like, part of me knew it was time for me to go. Mm. Um, And I think that there's a kind of nervousness that I sometimes feel when I come to New York to read uh, that has to do with like a very old, very young part of me that's like, oh my God, maybe no no one's going to show up. Or maybe, you know what I mean? That like I... And it's a and it's a totally irrational thing because I have I lead an extraordinarily lucky life in poetry, but that somehow like I wasn't f- of here in a way. Mm. I don't know if that even makes sense, but like something about like loving it and also having needed to leave it. Um, that when I come back and read, I'm like, oh my god, maybe everyone sees me for like the goober that I am, <laughs> which is funny. That's so interesting. I mean, there was so much love there last night. It was extraordinary. And it's always that way. Like, it's always like, I find I was saying, again, that like, I mean, New York is the most loving, Adrian Matika and I were talking about it today. We we had coffee or or tea, I'm on a cleanse, um, (laughs) (laughs) earlier. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, we're really dear friends. And I was saying like, there is a kind of feeling in New York during readings that is so... I do think NYU is particularly good. I do too. About that. Mm -hmm. Um, Of like just a loving, warm environment um, that comes from like people who are not just there because they want to be, but like they're there, they want to be, and they could have been at like eight other readings at the same time. Yeah. I do find it's like sometimes people will contact me like friends and or or acquaintances and they'll say, oh, I'm coming to New York. You know, can you help me get a reading set up? And it's like, no. Yeah. I mean, I have no I don't run a reading series and that I don't find New York to be particularly welcoming in that sense. It's it's really hard to like find a place. But once you have it, I feel like people are like yeah. really with you and 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 there's something about NYU too like the the chairs are so uncomfortable um, <laughs> and and so close together yeah um and it's so hot in there yeah and something about those things I feel like makes it um warmer and cozier and more yeah. intimate and more people like really are paying attention and and usually like if they come to the reading they've read all your books right this is the thing and like I will say um I agree with you about that about New York like I agree about it is a it is a great place to read and and maybe this is part of my nervousness is every time I recognize like it's actually really hard to get to read here even though it seems like it isn't and like why am I being asked to read here so it's like part of that kind of thing but uh, yeah, I, I like those NYU readings. Um, I don't know. I think it's something about the poetics of the program too. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's always been a place that has felt open and like inclusive. And I agree. Like people really have read your work, and like there's a kind of um, the number of people last night who came and like who I didn't know who had read all my books, mm-hmm. like. That was amazing. And that doesn't happen, you know, in right. other places. Or or particularly, like, when you do college readings, which I love, but you'll have people like, oh, I read your book in class, mm-hmm. not, like, people in their early 20s who've read, like, everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, let's – so let's – Give some context. Oh, yeah. Hi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like how we just, like, sat down. But your apartment is so beautiful, and it, like, 
here we are. Thank you. I know. I'm really psyched to have you here. I'm flipping out. I keep like <laughs> I didn't want to like feel like I was like bragging to people either because like I'm really obsessed with not doing that. But I just was like, oh my god! Like to me, to get to do this is a huge deal. It's really, it's, it, it is a huge deal to me too. It's every exciting. single time. It's kind of amazing. Um, okay, so you're here. You have a new book, Rocket Fantastic. Um, new book. You read last night at NYU with Dana Levin and uh-huh. Adrian Matika. Um, and let's give like a little context about your book because it's it. I love this book so much. Um, oh my gosh. This is your third full length collection, mm-hmm. and it. I so the book has um, a few d- very various recurring forms. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you have in your mind uh, names for these forms, like. Um, my book, The Pedestrians, it yeah. had like untitled poems yeah. and then it had titled and then it had some that were in prose. Yeah. And yours is sort of similar in the, yeah. in the sense that it has these. Um, so uh, I don't I don't want to refer to them by the wrong names, your secret names for them. No, you can refer to them any way you want, because okay. I think of them as sort of. Um, I mean, I think it. I really think of the book, whether or not anyone else does or, you know. I think of it as like a kind of world and a, and that the closest approximation is like a medieval tapestry mm. where you can step away from the whole thing and kind of see the whole world of it, right? Mm. All kinds of things are happening. All people are doing different things. And, but then when you step really close, there's also these very intimate, really specific moments and people aren't really voices, whatever they are, the vessels aren't really aware of each other even though like they're very often saying the same things they're doing the same things they're doing things to other people that are going to impact someone else in the book Mm -hmm. um and which i think is kind of like what the world is um i'm sorry if i'm not i'm having a tough eye day today and so so if i'm not always looking at you it's just that i get Um, very self-conscious about it uh, well, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. I want okay. you to know that yeah. in my heart, I am looking at you the whole time. Um, I really... And that has to do with the form of the book, actually. The, yeah. My visual... Well, we can get to it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, I'm sorry. So, go back a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you were talking about the, the, the world of the book and how the poems and or the voices sort of are aware of each other, but also aren't completely. Right. And yes. So... So initially, the the different forms um, or shapes or vessels, as I might call them, they came from a kind of earlier incarnation of the book when the book was a real set story, mm. which thankfully I got away from. Um, and it was sort of a way to differentiate um, the voices uh, as I was like working and the different storylines. And thankfully, like, I stripped all that away after mm. a period of realizing that that was not, like, the right thing to... It wasn't... It, it, was a, it was a shield more than anything else that I was using to not talk about the things I really wanted to talk about. Um, and so the, the forms um, are... There are titled poems. Uh-huh. There are the band leader 
poems are the poems in which the band leader appears. Which I would also call the, the null point poems. Those are the nystagmus poems. We can okay. talk about that later. Great. Um, then there are um, the poems that are, that are untitled, sort of, but they're in prose. Mm-hmm. And um, the very beginning um, is larger. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the band leader appears in some... I mean, they're, there's, they're not... Yeah. Uh, divided. No. Right. And they start to seep into each other. Mm-hmm. And that's something that happens as the book goes along is that um, as the book goes along, I, I think there is something. And I think I did want this from the beginning, even though I didn't understand yet why I wanted it. I, I wanted initially there to seemingly be real differences between the voices and then there to kind of come apart where you ne- couldn't necessarily know who was speaking all the time, mm-hmm. or you couldn't, you know, there's this whole idea um, that I think a lot of us are taught in grad school, right, um, about poems, who is speaking to whom, for what purpose, and through what mask. Mm. And the moment the book really came together in a way was when I actually said, like, like, I think one needs to do at any point, like, why do I believe that? I believe it because I was told that, and it's not that it shouldn't be true, and it's not that it it can't, it, or it's not that it can't be some version of poetic reality. <laughs> but why does it have to be true? And you know, I I think about persona a lot. I write persona a lot, although I don't think of these as persona poems really anymore. But the, I wanted there to be a moment where it was like, well, what if all these things are being said and and you don't necessarily know who's speaking. Maybe they don't necessarily always know who's speaking or what they're seeing. Um, could you do that in a book and still have the reader feel like intimate, intimately engaged? And could actually that be a moment that like the reader felt the most intimately engaged in those yeah. moments? Yeah. Like, could you at the moment of like highest sort of destabilization of like the rules could you actually have a reader feel like they'd been opened to something, you know? Well, I felt opened to something, and I feel like um, what we're talking about now is is complex and multi-layered and somewhat abstract and um, kind of metaphysical and yeah. spiritual and political. Yes. But I also want to say for the very unfortunate people who have not read your book yet, um, that the experience of reading it was not confusing, abstract. There, it was sometimes spiritual and metaphysical, but it was, I, I wasn't confused. Um, and I think that's just really important to say, because I think that the way that we're talking about it is as clear as possible, but, but also doesn't really convey how pleasurable and, um, and, and concrete the poems are. I'm smiling like ear to ear and I can't control myself <laughs> and I feel like crying because like, I also will say, I think it's a deeply accessible book. Yes. And I don't have a, like, not only do I not have a problem with that, it's like something I deeply want from mm. my books. I, I do not care, <laughs> you know, about, uh, um, I'm very emotional right now. Um, you're in the right place. I am a writer who has, like, as with many of us, right? Like, there are a lot of people who really like my work, and then there are a lot of people who, like, super don't. And there are a lot of people who really think I'm not smart. Interesting. Yeah. Like, there are a lot of poets out there who think, like, I'm super nice, and I have no brain. And, um, 
and that is often linked to my friendliness and a certain kind of public life that it is important to me to lead and I wanted to I have great confidence in my own brain and and um and my experience and I wanted to make a book that was the hardest thing I could make for myself and that like pushed me in unimaginable ways that was also like a deeply accessible book mm-hmm. um I think in some ways because I grew up in a family that owned movie theaters when I was little and like I think of what I really wanted to do was could I make a book that actually really felt like what it is to be in a movie or in a television show like that you are obsessed with and that like you feel like you've actually stepped into it you are totally engaged and you are also like, and this is important, like you are welcome. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. You know, yeah. I think that you maybe just perfectly defined, um, my goal <laughs> in poetry. Yeah. You know, to make something that's the hardest thing that I can make that really feels welcoming and mm-hmm. that the reader feels, um, you know, never, um, condescended to, um, and never um, kind of pointlessly uh, kept away. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting because I was going to ask you to talk about some of the ways that in this book in particular, this these forms developed. Um, and I, you know, was going to tie some of them to... Um, physical things, personal experiences, and all of that is probably true, but I, I don't want to fall into the trap of, of also not talking about the intellectual, you know, uh, development that came, you know, that, that led you to this. But it's all the same for me. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the thing is like, um, This is the first book where I really worked into my nystagmus. So, okay, nystagmus is the yeah. right way to pronounce it. Nystagmus. So, talk, tell, say what that is and, and, yeah. Yeah, so nystagmus is a visual and neurological condition. Um, it is, a, it's it, the, the manifestation, the way it manifests, um, you're born with it, um, and the eyes are in constant spasm. Mm. So... Uh, if you're looking at me, you might be able to see my eyes are going back and forth. And I actually bet they're going back and forth a lot right now because, like, I'm tired, I'm emotional, I'm excited, I'm all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm nervous. I'm, um, and if you try to stop it, does it make it worse? Yeah, and you really – I mean, well, I can slow them – to a certain extent, but that is because um, from when I was like six and a half or seven until I was like 18 years old, every week I went to the holistic vision therapist Mm. um, and I learned, I did biofeedback. There are breathing things I can do to slow them. Mm. Um, But it's not something that you can just like do and and it can make it worse in that like if you're trying really hard, like many things, like the harder you try, the more tense you're getting and like it's... It's a cycle. And so um, 
your eyes will, will move back and forth very quickly, constantly. And um, various things happen. When you're young, uh, it can affect your balance. Uh, I have pretty bad balance as it is now. I didn't walk till I was almost three. Mm-hmm. Um, people with nystagmus will often have a head tilt. Uh, or when they're young, they'll swing their head. Um, probably because there's there's maybe still some movement. Um, it's not like the world moves back and forth unless I'm very tired. If I'm very tired, like sometimes there'll be a moment where there'll be a shift. Um, it's, uh, it is, it's not really linked to things like nearsightedness so much, but your, your vision fluctuates in and out really with how tired you are. Mm. And, and the, the movement will get a lot worse and a lot more pronounced, like the more fatigued you are. And if you're under emotional stress or physical stress, um, things like depth perception, uh, it's it's an interesting thing where like there are a lot of people who have nystagmus who can't read, who can't uh, drive, who can't. I mean, it's it can be very profound, or there can be people who have it like n- not so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is pretty profound. It's never gone away. A lot of people when they have it when they're little, it'll it'll go away later. It's also interesting. It's mainly men who have it, which is kind of fascinating uh-huh. that I have it. Um, and uh, many people who are albino have it, mm-hmm. and so probably have some sort of gene for albinism Hmm. um it's it's a constant in my life and um the only other poet i know who had it was lorraine neidecker really yeah and i think there's i can see it like Mm -hmm. i really because the thing about and i've said this in other interviews but the and this is sort of the poetics of this the one of the things about nystagmus is that everyone who has nystagmus has something called a null point. And the null point is this place that, like, if you move your head and it's why you have a head tilt, um, you put your, you can put your eyes in the space where they are at their stillest point, where they shake the least, and where your vision is, like, the clearest. Huh. But it's, it's an, also like a trance. Like, it is the most relaxing place in the world. And... You could like spend your whole life in there. I mean, you could, I think it's like the Oracle. Like it's like, it is both a moment of like clearness, but also such stillness. And it's a moment where you're not really working. I'm always working. I mean, I am aware that like, I'm constantly working. I get very tired by the end of the day. Um, And, and I think Nidecker, like there's a, there's something about the expansiveness of those poems like the openness um, at the same point that they're sort of in their way, very concentrated. Mm -hmm. That feels to me like the null point. And I wanted to, in the band leader poems where I'm already talking about sort of the vessel and like, what is the body? Like, could I actually make poems that whether or not a reader understood it sort of swung back and forth a little bit, like my, like sort of followed the movement of my eyes. Um, but could also create that space of the null point in them. When were you aware of the null point in your life? When did you have a name for it? Or when do you remember like, l- learning, like, wait, not everybody has this experience? I mean, I, I didn't learn about the null point, I think, until I was probably like 10 or 11. Like maybe my eye doctor spoke about it a little bit, but it wasn't until then that it kind of like, took hold at the same it took hold at the same moment when my eye doctor told me that everybody seems sees color differently so like you and I could be looking at this and both call it red 
but like I don't know that you aren't seeing my green Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and I think that that's also a really central part of my poetics is like very often in my books a lot of people are looking at the same thing and seeing it totally differently and I know it comes from that moment Mm. um so I didn't know like about the idea of the null point, but from from when I was littlest, I can remember that trance feeling, like, and that I would do it to relax myself. I would do it when I was fantasizing. I had a very deep life of fantasy. I still mm-hmm. do, um, and that like I would always cock my head, sort of when I went into that place, and I realize now, like, oh, you know, that was the null point. Um, but it wasn't until like later in my life that I, I put a name to it, Mm. but I always knew that there was something I could do. I always knew that I could go somewhere that got away from everyone and everything. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone has that to some extent, but it was a physical place. Um, it was also a place that felt very much like both fantasy and prayer to me. Mm. And I do think that like whatever my spiritual or religious life is very locked into the null point. Like mm. it's very connected to that in ways that I didn't realize till I was older. Wait, I, I, I would like to hear more about that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I am someone who like, since I was, since I can remember, I have prayed a lot and I've talked to God a lot and was just like sort of constantly in conversation part of it was that I didn't really have anyone to talk to and I was really lonely and I was, you know, but I also, um, I also always had a sense of something like bigger than myself. I'm not saying other people don't have this. I think everyone has this, you know, like, it's not like, Oh, I have a stagnant so I can access to something that other people can't. But what I would say is I had a physical place that I could go to knowingly or not where such a profound stillness was created that also felt larger than myself. It felt outside of my body and that it was a place where I felt alone, but not lonely in my body, which was entirely unusual because I always felt very lonely and alone in my body. Mm. And it was a place where like, I felt both, I felt deeply like alone but also like there was this extraordinary peace, you know, the passive peace, this extraordinary peace that came into my body and also a sense of like something so much bigger than me. And I don't know, I don't know which came first, like the God or the egg, but like I, I think that when I was in that space was often a moment because I was, because of various things in my life was also trying to self-soothe mm-hmm. through that and also praying that uh, that those two things became very, very linked for me. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, they became very linked. Is your um, spirituality and your relationship to the divine, however mm-hmm. it comes to mm-hmm. you, um, still primarily a- a- alone? Or is it also part of a community and it's really alone it's mm-hmm. sad um it's uh it was not always thus when I was little I uh I went to church with my grandmother and it was like a tiny little church in middle Haddam Connecticut and um 
you know, it was a really little village. And so it was the kind of thing where like church was where you went on Sunday, but like faith was something that you did all week long. And like not everyone in town went to church, but everybody knew the pastor. And like, you know, she would come to our house and she would drive people to vote. And my grandmother was very, very religious in a way that felt really good to me. Um, what was the denomination? Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Yeah. Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. My mother was uh, super religious in a way that did not feel safe to me. She was mm. she was Episcopalian, but she was basically born again, and she was very ill. And I'm not linking those things to say like people who are deeply religious. I don't feel that way. I do feel like she was a mentally ill, very poor person in ill health who also had a lot of beauty and a lot of abilities that she could not get the world to see. And I think that there's something about a certain kind of faith um, that can be very, very uh, attractive to people who are in those positions. And I think there's a specific kind of pastor who can be attractive to people like that. Um, You know, she spent a lot of time talking about God's anger at her, Mm. um, which is not how I experience God or or ever have. Um, So for a long time, I became very nervous. And my parents, my father and my stepmother were like deep, deep atheists. Mm. So I went from my grandmother's house to my parents' house and um, deep atheists who were also like amazing, like tremendous readers and lovers of music. And so I sort of gained other kinds of faith. But um, anyway, so so religious practice was something I kind of put inside myself. I never stopped talking to God. I never stopped praying, but I stopped thinking of it publicly that way. And in fact, it wasn't until I did a radio interview at Stanford when I was a Stegner fellow where they asked, did I keep a journal? And I said, no. They said, well, what do you do at the end of the day then to like sort of figure out what your day has been? And I just said, without thinking about it, I said, oh, I pray. Mm. And I realized like I prayed every day, multiple times a day. Mm. I, I mean, sort of all day long. And if you th- if you think of prayer, a certain kind of conversation is prayer. Um, I was really alone in it though. And then I we moved to Los Angeles, and um, and I got involved with this uh, just remarkable congregation called Ikar, uh, which is a Jewish organization, mm. and. Um, and I was not converted, but I had a very, very, this is emotional, I had a very profound Jewish practice. I mean, I did Torah study, I did Shabbat, I did, it meant, like, the world to me, and the community meant the world to me, and if I were in Los Angeles, I would still be at Ikar, or there's also a, I've been asked, I do, um, because of that community, um, I got, I continued to get asked and ways I talked about it I get asked to do other things in LA sometimes with um, Jewish people who know that I am not converted um, but don't mind um, because I am very serious about it and I but I got to the south and although the south has been amazing in many ways um, I really tried to find a community and what I kept being asked was was I converted but there was a real resistance also to non-convert converting if it wasn't for marriage. I got a lot of questions about was my husband Jewish when clearly like I am not someone with a husband. And it was just clear like um, I've spent a lot of my life being shut out of things and having to like fight to be part of things. And I, I did have to make the decision where I was like, I just can't. This is not, I'm not going to fight 
to be part of this mm-hmm. in this way. Now, like I was just in LA with this extraordinary community, my beautiful friend, Rosal Rosette, who brought me to her community in Los Angeles. And we did an incredible weekend on prayer and poetry. And if I were to, you know, go back or whenever I go back, that community is so welcoming to me. This is a long answer. No, it just is. I'm, I'm fascinated. But yeah, I mean, um, and I say that by way of saying like, I also have a, like a, a Buddhist, like I sit. Um, and, and so I, I am, I am always still looking for a community to be with and to sit with and to pray with because, um, I think like defining a religious faith has been and can be very, very important. And I also think like, I have a profound relationship to God and I would like to be in the presence of others celebrating that. Mm -hmm. And I don't get so quite so caught up in like what I call myself, although ideally I would have a Judaic practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I don't think, even if I converted, I, I don't think I could call myself Jewish because it's also a cultural identity that I don't have um and so it's important for me to also be in a community that's cool with maybe someone who isn't going to convert because like i don't know that i would i you know there's a lot and and i will say okay i also understand i understand the specific hesitancy in the south you know i understand like even if it's hurtful in some ways i do understand like as you said in charlottesville I think it's hard to be Jewish everywhere. I think it's very hard to be Jewish in the South. And I think, I think, and many, many people who I, there are, there are many fewer people, like in LA, tons of people who had converted in that um, community. Like there were lots of people there who were not converted. I think that to say that you're Jewish in the South is, that's a lot and it's, um, and I could be wrong about this, but I, I do think I, I do understand the resistance or the skepticism to like people just coming in, I guess. And do you think it's because they feel that, you know, these the members of the Jewish community who probably are not all Jewish by each other's definitions, yeah. um, that they feel threatened or embattled in a different kind of way? And so therefore, like what... I don't know. It's, it's very generous of you, I feel like, to say that you understand it. I guess, um, you know, in some ways it's easy for me to be outraged um, because I've lived my whole life pretty much in New York. Um, it definitely felt very different to be Jewish in Iowa City yeah. than to be Jewish in New York. And that was my first experience um, with that. Um, but I've never, you know, I've, I've always been afraid to live in the South in part because of that. And so, you know, going to Charlottesville and spending a little bit of time there was like, there was something that I really, um, was envious of the way in which you kind of, and again, this is based on so little real deep experience. Um, it was more a feeling of like, it's so easy in a certain way to be Jewish in New York, but there's all these choices of synagogues yeah. and like, you know, uh, you know, this and that. And, you know, I am i don't keep kosher at all, but there's like a kosher, you know, yeah. marketplace every five blocks and, you know, whatever. And um, 
in Charlottesville, there's this one synagogue basically. Yeah. And so I loved that feeling. So for me, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, um, anybody who wanted to be a part of um, this community is here. Yeah. And so I really, I liked the way it felt less self-selecting yeah. than in New York. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that's a fantasy. Um, and so I guess it's hard. It's it. I, I can see how the flip side of that would be actually a weirdly less accepting mentality. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. Like if I were willing, I have this visual thing. So like I don't drive that much. I, I, I'm perfectly legal to drive and I can drive, but I, I choose not to as much. And so if I were willing to drive 35 or 40 minutes, there are very inclusive from what I've heard congregations in um, Raleigh and Durham. And mm. I know that there's one in Chapel Hill that would probably say like, we would welcome you with open arms. Um, so it's, but what I will say is, is that on a, like when I've wanted to go places and I've tried to go places, um, it's ended up being like about conversion, but also about like my gender identity yeah. and like, kind of like, why are you here? Is it because of your husband? Well, clearly I don't have a husband. You know? Okay, you've said that twice. Why yeah. do you say clearly you don't have a husband? Can you say? I don't know. You? Maybe it's, and that's a funny, I realize I say that twice. I guess there's something about like, and maybe no one would know. I feel like I hold myself in a way or just like, um, I come in, I wear my bow tie, I have a certain way of being, but you're right. Like there's no way anyone would not like, there's no way anyone necessarily would know that. Um, or if I were to come into a space with Angelina, I think of myself as so linked to my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think that when I say that, I am touching on my own kind of, um, the frustration of, of having to like, that somehow, some, I'm trying to articulate this, a feeling of, of, um, people also sort of trying to in the spaces I've been sort of trying to pull my queerness away from me Mm. you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like why you know and that that's also like this is something I've actually worked really hard for like this is something and like and that like it's it then becomes another way in which I'm not fulfilling something I need to be fulfilling even though there are tons of gay people in the congregations I'm sure in Chapel Hill um you know it's uh yeah, it's amazing how personal it feels for me. Yeah. And how old, you know, like how, um, and I'm sure there'll be people like who will hear this in Chapel Hill and be like, why don't you just come to this one and like be part of this? And, but um, there is something now where uh, there is something now where like I'm in a space again of sort of being deeply on my own with it. Mm-hmm. Do you have um, a, a different, no, no, com- no religious community right now, right? Do you yeah. have a different one now? No. no. Sometimes I will go sit at the one Buddhist temple, uh, which is a beautiful place. But I mean, I also like, I love being part of a community like that. And I'm, I mean, this is perhaps a central conundrum of me that does also come out in the poems and also comes out like in my daily life and probably in some ways in my life in the poetry world is like I both deeply want to be part of things and I also was 
shut out of things and alone for long enough that like I also get skittish or I am I am deeply suspicious of institutions yeah deeply you know and I'm super deeply and so I also have this thing of like wanting to be part of it and then getting nervous and pulling away mm-hmm so last night, um, I'm just bringing in one more thread because all these things feel intertwined mm. to me. But so last night, um, I have this just wonderful former graduate student. Um, she loves your work. And yeah. the question that she wanted to, me to ask you was that one of the things that she really appreciates about your work and about things that you've said in interviews is the way in which... Um, coming out has not necessarily been like okay and then I came out and that yeah. was done it has been oh, yeah. a, a, a process an unfolding process what yeah. is unfolding an sure. okay word yeah um and so it's just you know I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit oh, um yeah. in part because I feel like it's so related to the poetics of this book oh, completely and to the ways in which you are describing like all the important uh, essential parts of your life as having in some ways been there from the beginning, but in other ways developing, unfolding different kinds of ways of naming them, different, different, um, you know, you always had a relationship with God, but yeah. the, but your relationship to that relationship in a way has changed a lot. So, oh, yeah. I don't know. Those things feel connected to me. Oh, I think it's like absolutely the central part of my poetics. I think it's like, thank you, by the way. Like nobody sees me. This It's amazing what you're doing. Um, when I was little, from the moment, I mean, I have never fantasized about like having sex with a man. I have never, it is also true that I have never fantasized about having sex with a woman in which I imagined myself as like having a vagina. I don't know if that's too risque for the show, but like that seems totally appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Ever. Never in my life have I fantasized about that. And from the earliest moment I can remember having sexual fantasies, which was very young, like in some ways younger than, Young to an extent that I sometimes wonder about how I even knew those things so young. Um, it was always with women. I always identified myself in those fantasies as a boy. Whether or not that's because I understood, you know, someone would say, well, you didn't know what lesbianism was. Like, yeah, that's true. Like, okay. I also like know that when I began to understand what lesbianism was, that it took a long time for me to call myself that, not because I didn't think it was incredible, but because it did not feel 
like what I was doing in my mind when I, because this was before like I had kissed anyone or had any kind of, you know, I had been falling madly in love with many girls, but like it was always in the context of me thinking I was a boy. I had to make a decision to stop being a boy, like to go to Catholic school, which is fascinating. Um, so then, but then I did, like, I went to Sarah Lawrence. I was there at an extraordinary period of gay activism, the lesbian Avengers and act up and, um, the you know herstory project and like all of these because we were in the guts of the aids epidemic and then like being a butch lesbian although i have never i mean i'm very like you know gentle butch like i you know but like stone butch lesbians what it was to be a butch lesbian that was a big deal and and it was a thing in and of itself and it was like a kind of i feel like i can't even i mean I may get in all sorts of trouble for saying this, but like, I feel like it is impossible in a way these days to understand, like, that's probably not true, but like, I, I don't know. There was something about like butch lesbian identity in the, in the nineties, in the early nineties that was like really, really extraordinary. And it taught me what kind of political person I wanted to be. And so I wanted to, I wanted to identify that way. And I still do. Like if someone says what well, I will identify as a butch lesbian also because I think people, because I think butch lesbianism in a way has fallen out of fashion in terms of people talking about it. I mean, there's tons of butch lesbians out there, but I think like, it's just, it's just different. And so, um, I say this by way of like saying like my understanding of my body, my sex, not just my gender, but like my sex, you know, which is different. And like, I think we talk a lot about gender and like, but my sex like was, is something that I still am understanding. And, um, and that's important for me to say out loud because like, my coming to different understandings about my sex, my gender, but my sex, like that has all kinds of implications for the people in my life. You know, like it's a profound thing to have to deal with that with someone. And it's a gift sometimes, but sometimes I think it's not. And, um, you know, I have gone through five or six kinds of adolescence in my life, if that makes sense. You know, like, um, I don't say adolescence in a bad way. I say like, but I have, I have had many periods of awakening in my life. Um, some right on time, quote fingers, and some like later, you know? Um, and then like, there's this, there's this idea of queerness and its relationship to, to gayness. It took me a long time to understand that those are like really different things, you know? I was really resistant to it. I was very resistant for a long time to, to the idea that straight people could be queer. Mm. It was a real prejudice I had, you know? And, and I think it was because I, like, I had fought so hard for my lesbian identity, although my parents were always cool with me. Like when I came out, it was fine. 
Um, but I had to fight within myself for all kinds of identity. And so then I had this sort of retrograde notion or not retrograde, but within myself, it was a limitation. What I was watching when I was watching people like the lesbian Avengers and when I was learning from those people and act up was I was really seeing like queerness and gayness in action together. Mm. Right. So I thought that everyone who was gay was queer. Maybe that's a more articulate way of saying it. And then I got out in the world and I lived a long time assuming that was the case without really interrogating that and looking around. And I have to say that in some ways, it was really the work of C.A. Conrad. Like it was really like if we think about the progression of coming out and like knowing and not knowing. I've also like this book is about not knowing. Like it's fine not to know, I think. Like if you're as long as you're an explorer, it's fine not to know as long as you like. Because that means you accept that you're fallible and you can you can go in and you can constantly be asking questions and maybe do less harm in your searching because person can, can do a lot of harm when they're searching um but then like you know particularly this last book of C.A. Conrad's which I just think is like I I mean we can or cannot talk about things like prizes but like I don't understand how I mean that book Standing in Lunchford I mean and like I that's an extraordinary book I mean that is a game-changing book like I cannot it is impossible for me to overstate what C.A. Conrad's, and we don't know each other personally. I mean, we you know interact on Facebook and stuff. We interacted a little bit because of Los Angeles Review of Books. But, you know, the, the, C.A. Conrad really helped me think about my various identities and that I do think of myself who is, as someone who is a queer gay person, a queer lesbian, but that I actually needed to be more public in my queerness. And through my activism and through like queerness for me is something like to keep working at and honing and like pushing into certainly living in the South, which I think is an inherently queer space. Um, and where one really, if you're going to be out in the world, I think you have to be queer in a mm. way there. If you're going to fight. Um, so let's back up for one yeah. second. So gayness is about sexual preference for me, for you. And, and how would you, how would you um, define your queerness as separate from your gayness? I mean, I think that for myself, like, I think that it is not separate from my, my gayness in the sense that um, I think of, I think of my, my gayness and my identification as a butch lesbian as a, as an inherently political act, mm -hmm. also a spiritual act. But I do think that like, I'm also like, I'm in a marriage. I've been with my partner next week. We will have been together 22 years. Wow. Like in, in many ways, like we are a very sort of heteronormative, like, you know, we, although I, I also buck against that because I think to be with a, a woman for 22 years is like, there's just no way. I mean, we've had a lot of people in our lives tell us like we're not. I mean, I used to get this a lot. We've had a lot of people in our lives like tell us like we're not like gay enough or something because we sort of got married and mm. we've had this long thing. Um, I, I think that I think marriage is a rat. I think being with anyone for th that long is a radical act. Um, I, but I do think that in terms of like my queerness, 
I think that my queerness, it is deeply invested in my lesbianism and involved in my les- lesbianism. But I could be a lesbian without being a political person, mm-hmm. right? I don't know that I could, but one could, you know? And I think that queerness is in opposition to capitalism. Mm. I do think that for myself. Mm. And like, I am in opposition in the world, in the poetry world, Lord, in the poetry world. Like, I am I am in resistance to um, a kind of high capitalist impulse to own everything, to know everything, which I think is a kind of capitalism. Um, and, and I do and I, I want to do less harm in the world, which does not mean that I that I do not think that systems need to be dismantled um, forcefully. Yeah, that to me is queerness. You know, I could I could make a decision. I don't know that I could anymore in my body, but I could make a kind of decision that would pull back from queerness, whereas I could not make a decision to pull back from my lesbianism, if that makes sense. I suppose I could in some ways, but there is something about for me and just for me, but that queerness to me is also like, it is a kind of practice for me. Like it is a, it is a constant honing of something and like really being in the world and, and seeing the implications of my own body in the world. And so, I mean, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'm so curious. So do you, was it, was it, I mean, C.A. Conrad is so in opposition to the poetry world to, you know, to like game changers exactly feels exactly right to me. You know, I remember when I first read C.A. Conrad and I was just like, I don't understand what, 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 I don't know where I am. I, what am, what is, who, who, who am I? Like it, it really, it, what is this? Right. What's happening? Yeah. What's happening? You know, and, and, um, but again, like, you know, that feeling that you described earlier of like, this is so hard and impossible and I feel welcome here. Yeah. Um, and then I just felt like, oh, okay. I, I, it is really okay for me to be totally lost yes. here and then also be like, what well, I don't think I had, why did I think poetry had to be this thing? Right. Um, but I'm so curious for you whether um, it was the poems and the way they sort of um, destabilized what you'd previously thought about poetry or whether it was something about imagining C.A. Conrad's life and, and interiority as, as the, as a person, you know, who was, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Well, because also like C.A. became, um, Conrad became not that they aren't anymore, but there was a period where Conrad was like sort of a huge public figure. Mm. And I think still is, but you know what I mean? Like there was a moment where all of a sudden it seemed like everyone was read, had all of a sudden like, oh my God, look at C.A. Conrad. Even though C.A. Conrad has so many books and they are remarkable. I mean, the arc of that artistic, political, uh, mystic life is extraordinary. Like if one reads like really through the whole. Um, 
what I, I think that when I first, cause, um, what is it? The book of Frank. And then, um, I just started reading all these wave titles. Like I just, I got very, I mean, being editor at Los Angeles review of books, one of the things that I think one of the greatest things that happened to me was I started to read wave books. Like mm -hmm. I really read those books. And, um, when I started reading C.A. Conrad, I didn't feel lost. What I felt was, um, and I feel this way very much about the new book, and of course, to some extent, one is supposed to, but I felt in general, it was like a rigorous poetics of healing that was going on, and a rigorous poetics, um, like, in some ways, C.A. Conrad is in direct opposition to um, po the poetry world. I might say the poetry business. Um, I would also say, though, that, like, and maybe C.A. Conrad wouldn't say this at all about their poems, but, like, I would also say those poems have always seemed to me to be in the business of being in deep alliance with the planet and being like in a kind of deep relationship to the earth um, and to community and to the body. And in that way, I think maybe because I do have a religious life and also because I have a whole other kind of spiritual world where I, I believe in certain kinds of healing, I believe in energy work, I believe in that stuff. The poems felt incredibly familiar to me in that way. Um, so I felt really engaged with them. But I also, when I would watch C.A. Conrad on Facebook or kind of out in the world, thinking about queerness, talking about queerness, and then like reading the poems through that lens, I would think, right, it's different. Like it's, it is at this point, like deeply, deeply queer mm -hmm. to ally yourself with the planet over human beings. Reading C.A. Conrad, for me, also chain, really changed something in me. I became aware in a different way about m my narrowness of vision around um, so many things, but, but the entry point for me was around uh, mental health and mental well or wellness yeah. um, and the way in which I, I was very um, anxious about um, certain kinds of experiences in a very binary way being like healthy, unhealthy, well, yeah. unwell. And that that, that was self-protective yeah. um, and there were reasons for that that were both you know, personal, but also like I had been very, you know, influenced to be like, this is normal and this is not. And um, if, if you're, you know, hearing voices or yeah. if you're, you know, you're in a pit of despair for a long time, you have to fix it right. and, and, and be normal like everybody right. else. Um, and I think that that um, was a real, um, a deeply held belief, yeah. you know, that I had and that came from fear and it, and I, it took me, it, I, I, I mean, I'm still working on it yeah. because it's scary. Yeah. It's um, scary. but I think like be, coming into an awareness and I don't know if I feel 
really comfortable using queerness in this yeah. in this context, um, in part because of the stigma yeah. of mental illness or mental difference um, or neurological difference, emotional difference, like all of those yeah. things. But I think like being aware of the ways in which I had been I had broken down so many of my own attachments to normative um, behaviors or, you know, certainly I was like not attached to, you know, heterosexuality as like a a value different than, you know, Um, but, but I think that was my, that was the thing that really rocked my world when I started reading C.A. Conrad and, 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 you know, I was thinking about um, when you were talking about your life as a series of awakenings, um, and I was curious about whether those felt like awakenings or that you had changed, if it's even possible to know the difference. It doesn't really matter, yeah. I guess, but I am, I, I, I ask for kind of a selfish reason, because like in that example, I wonder, did I always know that this was a false binary, that this right. was a, that this, that this was, n- that I could let go of this, even though it was really scary, or did I change? Right. Um, I don't know why that feels significant, but. No, I think it is. I mean, this sounds like a cliched answer, but what I think is that I didn't feel like I changed. I felt, I have felt like, and particularly with this book, like whether or not anybody likes it or how many people read it or whatever, like, what I felt like is like, I didn't change. Like I allowed, I am increasingly trying to allow the person who has been there to like be there, mm. which doesn't mean like there are lots of ways I change or I deepen my understanding of things or I become like more and less educated about various things. And so my position in the world shifts, but I do think that that the person one is born as, like the kind of central energy that everyone has is pretty remarkable. Like we come into the world, I do believe, um, luminous and endless in our possibilities. And then slowly those possibilities get closed to us, Mm -hmm. right? Like we start, oh, I have to use this bathroom. Oh, if I'm going to go to Catholic school, which is the only good school, I have to put this dress on oh I want to you know these people matter to me so I better not say that I pray oh like I can't say I'm not certain about this because this that would mean this oh you know like and and when you do all those things you're also honing a person that can have an extraordinary life you know like it's not like I'm saying like oh my gosh look I was this little withered thing like crawling around the earth like but there is something for me about getting back to my core self who may be good, maybe bad. Like it's not really about good or bad. It's like, it's not like, Oh, I'm going to get back to my, you know, perfect, innocent, pre-fallen self. Like, please I'm fallen. Like, but like I am, when I was young, like I could feel the God in myself. I really knew that. I really knew the ways in which I was um, I was uniquely, uniquely special. That doesn't mean better or worse than anyone, but I think everybody is, right? Everyone has that. When I get on a plane now and most mornings, what I say is, um, dear God, please let everyone in the world be 
recognize that within themselves that is most uniquely like luminous and beautiful within them let them go into the world and use that part of themselves to change the world open the world for the better and please let them be seen for that part of themselves by everyone in the world right um i i do I do believe we all have that and I do believe that just like making it like through the day to day, like getting to the subway today, there are a lot of reasons that you close that off. Yeah. And so I think that one thing that this book tries to do is say like, what if you just like dropped away, could drop away of some of those things and let that part like show itself. And the truth is it's going to make a lot of people like not like you, but like you're going to be able to breathe easier. Mm-hmm. Can you, I, I, you can read whatever you want to read, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm having a moment where this poem has come up for me a few times in the uh-huh. conversation in weird ways. Um, Praise House, uh, The New Economy. Yeah. Um, this poem in certain ways um, feels straight, gay, and queer uh-huh. all together. Yeah. Um, it's one of the ones that has a title and is left justified and has kind of, looks more like a poem yeah. um, on the page. Um, and then there are these things in it, um, moments, moves, perspectives, lines, which subvert um, all of my expectations about what this poem is going to be. Um, and then I, I want to ask you some questions about it, but would you mind reading that? Yeah, Okay, sure. great. And this is for my really dear friend, Ross Gay. Praise House, The New Economy. The rosemary bush blooming its unabashed blue, also dumplings filled with steam and soup, so my mouth fills and I bubble over with laughter little things, people kissing on bicycles, being able to walk up the stairs and run back down, Joanna's garden after the long flight to Tel Aviv, not being detained like everyone thought I would, the man with dreadlocks and a perfect green shirt walking home from work, one cold beer before I drink it and get sick, how peaches mold into compost in a single day, orange to gray to darkness into dirt. Her ankles taste, the skin right under the knob, delicate as a tomatillo's shroud. All the animals that talk to me, that I finally let them talk to me. The blessing of waking early enough to watch the fox bathe itself the suction of a man's hands, meeting another's on the street, every single person looking up to see them. Bros, yes, but lovely in the golden light with brims swung to the back. I want shoulders like they have, want my waist to taper to an ass built like the David's. I admit it, this body's not enough for me. Still, I love it. I'll be sure blasting out of Nissan Sentra's windows, bow ties, ridiculous blues. My mother's seizures, specifically that I don't have them. That I can answer Ross's call or not, because we live harmonious and are always talking somehow. 
tapestries with their gluttony of deer, fig perfume, and also cypress, boxer briefs, and packing socks and jockey shorts, strap-ons, soft and hard, welcome in her hand, and in mine as I greet the real me, the little shop in Provincetown, and the speckled dog that licks itself in that fresco of the crucifixion, Mary Oliver. I love her. I really do. The baseball she gave me that says, go Sox, though I love the Orioles. Old Bay on all my shrimp and justice, and cities burning if people need to burn them to get free. My mother gardening in the late light, Sun Ra, the first time. Paris, even though I've never been there. Natal plums. Tattoos everlasting, clouds, Orion's belt, pushing inside her with both hands holding myself up, my weight, her grabbing and saying, God, fuck, the neighbors, Casablanca, not knowing anything, angels, mashed potatoes, good red wine. Thank you. You're welcome. I don't know if you noticed that when you read that poem last night, um, that there was a vocalization in the room. Um, yeah. So I noticed it, um, certainly around the lines, um, and cities burning if people need to burn them to get free. There was a lot of, um, I would say approval for lack of a better word um, around those lines. And then, and the bros, the bros, people responded to the bros and then the neighbors Mm -hmm. also uh, people laughed Mm -hmm. um, uh, at the neighbors. It was a really, it was an interesting moment. Yeah. I'm always aware it doesn't, it depends on the crowd for the city's burning Mm -hmm. line. Like if people vocalize, it also depends on the neighbors, and I think it has something to do with, like, if you haven't lived in a city, like, where you're in close proximity to the neighbors, like, it, like, you get, it's not that you don't get it, but it's not the same thing of, like, you know, being quiet in your apartment, you know, mm-hmm. because you're paper-thin walls. Everybody, always, now, like, I'll give readings and no one will do it, but, like, the bros moment is almost always a moment. And I I did not anticipate that. But I think it is something, right? Like it's something about those bodies that both like do extraordinary harm on the planet a lot of the time. <laughs> but also are like beautiful, like how beautiful to be so confident, like how gorgeous, like to be able to, like feel that comfortable to look that healthy, you know, like not that all bros do, but you know what I mean? Like that sort of idealized bro of the poem. Um, everyone for a moment, because it's not like people make a noise when that line gets said of like, Oh, I hate those fuckers. Mm-hmm. It's never that. No. It's also, it's always like, yeah, like wouldn't it be great if they were awesome? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and also like, oh, I just really love looking at them, right? And I'm and I'm a little caught out, you know, or called out or something, you know, in that pleasure. Yeah. I wanted that body. Yeah, I cannot lie. Like, mm-hmm. 
I do not want to be as handsome as I'm sure some people find them. I do not want to be like a wispy band guy, you know, like <laughs> that holds no interest for me uh-huh. in terms of like my, the body I imagine for myself is not that body. And that may be problematic. I mean, at this point, like that may be problematic in all kinds of ways. And, but the body, like I am, the male body that I imagine for myself, not even imagine, like that I know is my body, that I've known since I was little, is, uh, it is not a body I could approximate um, in any way. And so that is an extraordinary grief that I hold. Um, and but I know that boy, like I know that man's body so deeply and it is that body. Like Mm. it is a kind of bro body, which is also, I think one of the things when you say it's a straight poem too, like, yeah. Yeah. Like for a long time, what I identified with when I was little was a straight boy. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it makes so much sense to me. Well, it's sort of dumb to say it makes sense to me. Who cares if it makes sense to me, but what a waste to have been raised to think that sexuality is one of at most five things. Right. And there is so much grief in not being in the body that you imagine that you have. It's terrible. I mean, it's, I think it also like, there are ways in which I think it has made me a different kind of citizen, both Mm -hmm. in the outside world and in the poetry world. I just cannot say that I know. Yeah. I cannot, and I won't. Like, I cannot say, like, I'm so certain. But, you know, one of the things that's amazing about this book to me is, like, the number of, like, straight women in their 60s who have written me, like, unbelievably personal and beautiful letters about this book and about, like, women who identify as straight, like, lying in their bed at night, sitting at their kitchen table, doing their day-to-day tasks and like thinking about this book constantly. And that's like how almost all of them Mm. depict it is thinking about this book constantly. Like that's very moving to me. Did you ever imagine that you were writing for them in some way? I never had any clue, Uh you know, and like, and yet I feel also very grateful and it, it is interesting. Like we think about one's audience, um, I'm very lucky in that, like, there are all kinds of success that I have not had and that perhaps I will never have, but, like, I have very passionate readers, and I am very lucky that, like, I have younger readers, middle, but, like, I have an incredibly passionate group of readers who are women in their 60s, Mm. like, unbelievably, and they will go anywhere with me. I mean, that is the thing that has been extraordinary over the course of my career. Like, I did not know... With this new book, I was like, well, this is, I mean, although there are real similarities between this and my other two books, but I thought like, this is super different. But like, those women, I mean, I think in general, but like, I will say those women, like, they are in it. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is that is speaking to them? Or what is it when do they ever tell you what, what? why this book has so much resonance and keeps playing in in their minds like that 
I think that like, and I don't want to, s- they would all, and they should, they should write on the comment section of this podcast if they listen to it. And I'm always thrilled to be wrong. Um, I do think there is something about like, I am just not interested in legislating anybody. And I believe that everyone is always, always, always like changing and open to shifting and open to new experience. And I believe, I believe in the absolute, I just believe that everyone is interesting. And I do think that there is something about, um, there seems to be something in that reader that, that recognizes that like I am working through something. I am also like, I don't need them to know either. Like I just, they're welcome. Mm-hmm. But I also, it is also something that's like consistently surprising to me. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an enormous amount of my readership. Mm. Can you talk a little bit? So one of the things I love about this poem is, um, and you you talked about this a little bit um, last night, but it's it says after and for Ross Gay, and you talked about um, being really close friends with Ross and with Adrian Matika, and mm-hmm. you said that when you were working on this book, um, they brought you out to Indiana yeah. um, uh, several times, right? Yeah. So wait, what does that even mean? And what did that look like? And what did you do? And how? I just like, they kept having me come and read. And like also Bob Bledsoe and Romaine, um, Rubius Dorsey, um, with the summer program, like for some reason, and I'm going to, I'm going there in like two weeks. Um, they kept finding ways for me to be there. And it would mean like doing a pretty standard thing of like teaching a workshop, being with the students, doing that stuff. But because it happened over like a, it's happened over a period of years, like really it is only, it is that program, Warren Wilson and the Fine Arts Work Center. Um, Vermont Studio Center, I went, briefly I would love to go again but I went briefly but it it was the first time I read for the intake of breath so I think of that as like a space where I was really like working something out Mm. with that book like trying to think it through but but I would say really that IU almost anywhere else because at Warren Wilson you can only read for 10 minutes and it's um it's just not a place that I've done that done certain things with these poems um like I do in my friendship with Adrian and Romaine and Bob and Ross. In that space with those students, I felt like it was a completely collaborative space where I could make mistakes and where I could do things that other places I would be too embarrassed to do. Like even last night, as much as I like love that space, I did not read for the intake of breath. Right. I just... It's hard to do, actually, if there's more than me or, you know, like, I think at KGB on Monday, I have a sense it's going to be a much smaller crowd. It will just be Dana and I. I will actually probably try and, like, read for those poems a little bit. Say, say what you say what you mean by... Well, yeah. like, so with the poems, there are poems in here where there is a... The, instead of a gendered pronoun, there's a symbol. And so, you know, 
uh, instead of saying she or he is the foxes and the wolves, she and he is the doves with the curved necks, um, I, depending on how I'm feeling in that moment, I might say, you know, the foxes and the wolves, the doves with their curved necks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is a really vulnerable thing for me to do, and it makes, and it's it's hard in certain ways physically, and also, like, I'm always sort of uh, afraid. And, um, and Bloomington was a space where, like, I went enough times that people knew that I was working on something, and, like, I felt okay getting up in front of a, you know, big crowd in a dark room, and, like, do something that could just, like, not work, and they were always open. Mm. Um, and so... That is a place of tremendous, like, Indiana might not be a place I feel particularly safe, but that space and those students were a place where, like, I really, really got to, like, work through those poems and work through what I was trying to do on, like, a larger scale over a period of time. And they, in their way, I think, became invested in it, too. I was a poet who was coming who was, like, really working on something and was appreciative of that space. Do you have any sense of what is uh, so vulnerable about reading those poems? Is it that um, you're doing something weird that hasn't been done, and so, you know, what if people don't like it? Or is it that that there's a physicality to that that you that makes your body very visible? Yeah. Um, I think it's both. I think the answer is yes. I also think, like... Um, And I've been asked this, you know, like people who don't like this book, they think they think it's a gimmick or Mm. not like interested, you know. And like so that was in some ways the big fear is like um, that it would. Yeah, like it would be embarrassing. It would be seen as not working, but also that somehow like it would seem like people use this terrible phrase project book now, which I like. I hate it so much. And and I hear people saying, like, I'm working on my project book. I'm like, oh, my God, how can you call anything that? Like, really? Like, what? Like, and yet I am someone who I think there are people who would say my books are projects, you know? Um, but there's a way of, like, that being a – that feels like a capitalist kind of thing to me. Um, and so the idea that, like, this would be, like – this would be seen as a kind of gimmick mm-hmm. – um, I think that I am always nervous of like being seen as a fake in some way. I don't, you know, and that it would be like, who are you to do this? Why are you doing this? Um, And then physically, because like, I really do try just to enter it and make the sound that my body wants to make then. Mm -hmm. And to do that in front of people is hard. Um, And if I do a lot of them, as I might do on Monday night, like, whether or not people like it or not it is a, it is a lot on the body like it's because yeah. it, because it becomes very hard um as there are more and more of them in the poems it becomes very hard not to hyperventilate because of the you know like it's it's actually and then i have to which is also what these poems are about i had a profound panic attack in 2004 really close to a nervous breakdown mm-hmm. and it took me about a year to like get out from under that and so it's also um and the poems are whether or not anyone else would know, the poems are deep. This book is deeply about that. And so there is something about doing something to my body that makes me become very close to feeling like I'm going to lose control. Mm. That is 
it's a really good thing for me to do, but it's hard. And if I don't feel safe in the space, like, oh my God, what if I actually start to panic? Like, yeah. what if I had an anxiety attack right here because I can't breathe? Is this a crowd of people that would help me? So I have a different association to this, uh-huh. um, which I don't know if this is going to feel like a total tangent or or maybe useful to you in some way. But um, about two weeks ago, I went to back to school night for my youngest kid and um he's this amazing teacher I mean all his teachers this year I just I think they would be creeped out if I did this but I want to like kiss their feet and like just give them presents and just tell them I love them yeah and so one of them um she she started talking now I I have a superpower which is that I can tell when a person is pregnant like very early on One of the ways that um, I often notice is breathlessness. Yeah. Um, and and one of the one of the things that I experienced when I was pregnant, giving readings, was just of not being able to catch my breath. Like even very early on, yeah. when I was not so big physically that my lungs were being smushed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I I I was I you know I I think a lot about the ways in which. You know, if we come out of a medical model that has the male body as the healthy body and the female yeah. body as the broken body, yeah. the pregnant body is like, whoa, right. everything is going wrong and we need to just return yes. this pregnant person to a non-pregnant person and then right. hopefully <laughs> even to a male body because yeah. that's all we understand. We've <laughs> only studied men, Yeah, you know, and... But, you know, of course, like, you know, pregnancy in, in most of the time is like the, the most healthy because your body can afford yeah. to spend all these resources. Right. And, and so I don't know, I was thinking about that, like I was thinking about the ways in which I associate breathlessness, both experientially and, you know, uh, with, with panic, yeah. with, um, with all the times in my life where I've felt like, um, grief, yeah. like I can't breathe. I can't even yeah. times when I am breathing, I have the feeling I'm not breathing, but if, but I was thinking about breathlessness as a sign of health. Right. And sex. And yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's also that, right? So it's also like, it sounds, it can sound like I'm coming. It can sound, you know, like it can sound Whatever it sounds like, it is an intimate sound. Yeah. And that's intense. That's intense to do in a room. Um, And it's intense to do in a room where people might then take that intimacy as um, something to be suspicious of or something to think is a trick or a joke, you know? Did the did the sound and the and the breath come first, and then you looked for a symbol yeah. to notate that, or did it was the, the other way? The sound absolutely came first, and in fact, um, for a long time I didn't know what to do, and then I, I had this weird like shahi, you know, weird thing on the page that was still like a pronoun, but um, and I went to the Vermont Studio Center, and have you? They have this beautiful building there. That it's like. This beautiful, it, you, it was an old theater in the town. Just this, it's gorgeous. And I was going to give my reading and I just, I don't know what made me decide to do it, but I just was like, don't read that word. Like, just make a sound. Mm. Just like make a sound. It was like one of the most, it was a very important moment in my life. And 
And that was an, that place, that was very important. It's also interesting because it was, you know, Vermont is this, is the state my mom lived in. She took her life in and like, I've got a lot of stuff in that state. Um, and, um, so I did that there. I did the breath and it felt absolutely right to me. Mm. And then I went to Bloomington very soon after that and I did it there. And then I went to the Fine Arts Work Center and I did it there. All places I felt very safe. Um, and so then I said to Gabe, like, as we were editing the book and I had this like other sort of weird pronoun thing there, I was like, I just, it doesn't, you know, I don't know what to put there, but we got to put, I can't, that is not right. And he was like, that is not right. That thing that is there. Um, so let's sort of think about a symbol. And they actually found the doll side note. They, they were the ones who was like, cause I sort of really couldn't see. I was so caught up in the sound and so caught up in like the vessel and the body of it that, you know, this is, this is why one has a great editor, right? Is like, and I always say that, like, it's very collaborative with Gabe in that way. Like he's incredible. And like, there have been times where people have said to me, like, why don't you go to another press, like mm. somewhere bigger? Not that necessarily bigger presses would have me or whatever, but one of, there are many reasons, but one of them is that I just don't believe there's really an editor out there who would have done that. Like, mm. I just don't believe it. I don't believe, you know, maybe I'm wrong. But when Gabe was like, well, let's just look, let's find some, let's like think about it that way. It's not me saying that other editors are deficient. I'm just saying like, there's a leap of faith with that and to do it in a hardcover book mm -hmm. and to like, you know, that's a leap of faith. And um, that is an anti-capitalist like thing. You know, I think it feels that way to me. And um, so they found the symbol and we sort of talked through it and there was this idea of return and the, and I was like, Oh yeah, that's right. Like mm. that's, but the sound came first mm. and the gesture and they just fell. I'm right. telling you, there is something going on. Was it behind me? Yeah. Was it inside the apartment? Yeah. Something just fell like out of the window onto the shelf. I, it's a, I, this is not usual. No, I feel we're, like we have, we're like, we have I, visitors. I feel like we're like pulling things yeah. towards us. And it's like getting dark in here now. Yeah. Like it's I still it's good. hear this buzzing every once in a while and I've just given up because I don't want to interrupt you and every I can't I I, every, I just feel like I'm it's, just like whatever. I'm sorry guys. There's like a slight buzzing and I don't know why and well, that's how it is. I just let's say we have visitors. Yeah. Well, I loved, I mean, early on you were talking about voices amplifying other voices, like yeah. something is happening. Yeah. Um, may I ask the uh, experience at the Vermont Studio mm -hmm. Center, was that before the major panic attack and the... No, my panic attack was in 2004. Okay. So it was after that. Way after. And... Um, but it is something like, you know, it is always with me that time. And I really, that's when I began to meditate. That's when I like really had to change my life in 2004 when that happened. And it was a really hard year and it was also a gift of a year, but like I can say a gift now, you know, mm. it's like one of those things where you can say it was a gift many years later in the moment. I did not know that I would survive it. I just did not know. Mm. And, um, so yeah, the symbol was like 
way, way after that. But I would say that like that time in my life is something that I'm still working through and still thinking through. And it's something that's always with me. I mean, it's always, always like my breathing, my sitting, my way of being in the world. Um, hopefully also my a compassion that I have or just a like a willingness to accept that like people are going through a hard time a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone thought I was like, most people thought I was fine during that year because I was very high functioning. I would, you know, I would finish my day at Stanford, get in my car, drive across the bridge, get home. My cat would be waiting for me in the bathroom because he was trained by that point to know that I was going to come and throw up for Mm. like 15, 20 minutes. Sheer anxiety. I mean, Mm. just like, and then I was going to have to like be on the floor and then I was going to have to like crawl into bed and like cry for hours, you know? And like, then I was going to like maybe sleep, maybe not. And like, get myself up and either do it again or just like every day you know I made these rules for myself like you're gonna go outside today you're gonna walk to this was in the Bay Area you're gonna want walk to Manpuku which is like the sushi place you are or the tea shop you are going to look three people who you don't know in the eye and say hello to them today and like it might take you two hours to do that but you will not go home until you've done that you will if you do that you can go you can have a little bit of sushi then you're gonna turn back around and you're gonna do it again and if you have to like if you have to sit on the ground and cry that's okay Hmm. like and I did you know like if you're gonna sit with your head in your hands on the sidewalk until you can get yourself back up and like get yourself home where you probably are gonna throw up the minute you get home because you're so freaked out it's okay Hmm. you know I cannot, I don't know if it's the privilege or what, but like, I cannot not imagine that every single person I pass by hasn't had a moment like that and maybe isn't having a moment like that. Like, like now it doesn't mean that I don't know people do horrible things and it doesn't mean I don't have like judgment and that there aren't people I don't want anything to do with. But that period, like it it would have been very easy for me not to survive it. And it was tiny things that kept me alive. Mm. Little moments of grace, the rosemary. I mean, the, the praise house is really in many ways about that, right? Like really and truly, I did not know that rosemary could be five feet tall until I got to California. And even the first years I lived in California, I had no idea, even though I was walking by it every day. It was not until I was sitting like many days I could get like halfway and then I would have to sit down and I would sit down beneath this bush and I would like cry or I would just like sit with my head in my hands and just be like, please God, like, let me go. Like, please let me go. Let me keep going. And one day I like turned into the bush that I was, had been sitting near. It was really my spot that I would stop and I smelled it and it was rosemary. And I looked Mm. up. It had never occurred to me that rosemary could be that tall. And then I took some. And from then on, like, I would take a piece off and I would smell it. And I would smell it and I would say, okay. And, like, then I found out, like, the healing properties of rosemary and all that. But I would, like, walk with that rosemary in my hand. And I would just smell it when I got nervous. And then I would, like, it would keep me going. It was little things like that dumplings like 
I, I was very blessed to be able to have those things. And so, yeah, that period is, uh, that the, the, the breath and the Vermont studio center came after that, but nothing is really after that. My life Mm -hmm. is, is essentially different since that time. And it is every moment of my life is with me. Mm. Do you have a sense of what, uh, precipitated that period and what was there a moment when even though there every part of your life is not after it's yeah. part of it was there a moment when you felt a shift yeah I mean well I think a few things precipitated I mean I think one thing that precipitated it was actually I was physically healthier and more stable in many ways in my life than I had ever been. And mm. so I think like my body was ready to like completely fall apart. I do believe in that. I do like not that not at all that like you know people fall apart all the time or have breakdowns all the time and it's not like wow, like this is the moment you're ready to do that. For me though, I think it was mm. and and like what it was was like I had the time and space and uh, a certain kind of health to like recognize that my life was a disaster and that my mom had killed herself and um, everything I thought I knew about myself was maybe not true. Um, you know, various things got me out of it. Um, my doctor gave me a pamphlet for the John Kabat-Zinn stress care and mindfulness program, which is all over this country. Um, if you see mindfulness-based stress reduction anywhere, that's his program. It's extraordinary, and I can't, I mean, I. it saved my life. Um, I had a very good Jungian analyst who I found. I had a very good psychiatrist who, you know, both of them were very interested in the John Kabat-Zinn they really worked as a team. Um, one thing that I am pretty good at, um, when I am in trouble as an adult is asking for help. And part of that comes from like, because of my eyes, I just have to ask for help. Like I have to ask for directions. I like, I can't, I can't be like proud about it or else like I won't get anywhere in my life. Um, there are other ways I have in the poetry. I have poetry worldwide. I have a really like I am someone who has a very hard time asking for help in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I knew I was in real danger. I knew my mom had killed herself, of course, and that I knew I was like I was as close to her in that way as I ever had been. And so I got a good yoga teacher. I got like a good therapist. I will also say I was in a position, a rare moment. I did not have that position for many, many years after that of being really financially secure. Mm. You know, um, I wasn't rich, but I had actually, my grandparents had died. I had come into some money, you know, all of which is, is gone now. And a lot of it was gone to that healing process. But, you know, my mom was super poor. She did not have the ability to like get a great psychiatrist, a yoga teacher. And, and I'm aware of that all the time. Sometimes I think like, I don't know what would happen to me if I had another moment like that. And it's one of the reasons I feel very blessed that it happened when it did, because I think that I have, I mean, we do okay now, but we're not, you know? Yeah. Like 
I have the tools now. I feel really grateful I have the tools now that if something happened again. Um, but so I would say that in a holistic way, what pulled me out of it was I had a team around me that helped me really become mindful and really sort of go a little crazy mm -hmm. as a means of like figuring my stuff out. I also absolutely at that moment had the financial ability to uh, take care of myself in ways that I may never have the ability to do again. Um, and that, that helped and medication. I mean, medication was really important to me for a time. And, um, and once I was willing to like, let all of those things work together, I was very resistant to being medicated because my mom had been so heavily medicated and I was really scared. Um, but once I started taking medication as a means of like forming a bridge while I learned how to meditate and do that stuff, there was a real shift. Like there was a real change in my life. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons I do a lot of the activist work I do is that like no one should not have those things available to them to make their lives better. Yeah. It's really a matter of life and death. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who still live in the way that I lived in that year. Um, it's a horrible way to live. It's really horrible. This brings up something for me that I, that I haven't ever really been able to articulate fully, but I have two seemingly contradictory feelings about life and poetry. Um, and one is that I have this idea that most of us write out of the parts of us that are I wish I could find a words that weren't so um, that that weren't had such a negative valence because I was going to say damaged or broken or different, mm. but I don't. You know, I, I, I what I'm talking about is like the ways in which our brains or our bodies, um, are not the way we think other people's are or the way that we think our own bodies and minds are yeah. or the ways in which we become visible to ourself um, in our nonconformity. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, Chuck Close spending, spending, you know, his whole life uh, making faces and being face blind, yeah. you know, um, or thinking about, um, you know, the history of artists who have had seizures or who have um, synesthesia or who have, you know, have um, named or unnamed ways of um, being in the world that are unlike either what most people experience or what we imagine, you know, yeah. most people experience. I'm, I'm sort of talking around it because we don't have the language really to describe what I'm trying to yeah. say or I yeah. don't know it. And so that's, so I, 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 I think about that a lot. I try to talk in a way to myself and to my students about, you know, so much of life is about trying to like, you know, fit in or fix yourself or like be, you know, to, it's yeah. because it's very dangerous and it's very 
painful to be out of step, but so much of being an artist is about going to those places and not trying to, to hide them, you know, pretend they don't exist. Um, but that, that is the source of like what, you know, makes a person, a have a voice and have something to say and have yeah. a way of saying it that is unlike anything that that someone else could say but also is the thing that other people are going to respond to yeah. you know so deeply um and so that's one yeah. big thought and then the other is you know this real feeling um that I want everybody to be safe and I want everybody to be okay. Yeah. Um, not in the sense of conformity. I don't want everyone to be the same. Yeah. But so many of those things, you know, there's a fine line between, oh, this is the most eccentric, interesting, unusual, you know, odd, weird, strange. All of those words are good in my mind, you know, nonconformist, you know, um, outsider things right into those spaces. And then when it gets into, you know, substance abuse, um, you know, severe, uh, uh, I don't even want to say severe, like, you know, it's, it's interfering with, you know, uh, anxiety, depression, psychosis, you know, um, uh, physical pain, illness, yeah. you know, these, the things that just, they, first of all, they make it impossible to write. Yes. They make it yes. almost impossible to live yes. and impossible yeah. for some people to live. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I don't know. I, I, I believe both things. Yeah. Like I want all my students to be safe and okay and feel loved and not be traumatized yeah. and, and, and you know and not seek out pain right and i also believe this other thing well it's also like pain's gonna find you yeah you know like and this is the thing that i would say is that i there's nothing romantic about suffering just like there's nothing romantic about poverty like and i say this like because of my mother and because of my own year like so what i think like is the challenge is when people seek that out, like, A, that's a privilege, you know, that's like extraordinary privilege to seek out that kind of trouble, you know, and that kind of sadness, because it presumes that you can get out of it, mm-hmm. you know, um, like my mother could not get out of it, you know what I mean? She couldn't, um, it's also, I don't know if I'm being articulate about this, but I do also believe like trouble is going to find you, you know, sadness is going to find you. And no matter who you are, like things are going to happen. Like you don't really need to go in search of it because it's probably actually even already there right now, you know? Um, And so I think that where it gets difficult you know, of course, like we want people to be safe and we want essential health for everyone, right? It may be that to get to those places, like real essential health, like people need to open deeply to their genuine suffering, 
like that may look like other people's and may not look like other people's. You know, I think we're in a moment right now where I just think the country is having a giant nervous breakdown. I really do that. I really do think we're in a moment of like communal psychosis. Yeah. And like, what is that? And like, how are we going to tend to that? You know, we want, we are in a moment, understandably, where we want like everyone like on one hand we're in a moment i think where we want everyone intensely to heal we want these these ruptures to heal and we want and and i think that like i want that and i also recognize like that kind of healing like healing on that level on a kind of cellular level this entire country what we're talking about requires a kind of breakdown that like how are we going to help with that we can't just decide we're not going to help i mean maybe we can but like god help us like okay you know um so i think there's that i also think and this is something like the book deals with a lot is like just um what kind of animal are you right the book deals a lot with animals and like the idea of the animal as like an animal like an animal is not good or bad. I mean, a man, an animal, a domesticated animal will do things that we call good or bad, right? I'm also domesticated. There are things, you know, but like a fox and the fox shows up a lot in here. Like the fox is like not good or bad. Like the fox is just a fox, you know, and, um, and the band leader isn't really good or bad. The band leader is like the band leader, you know, and... I do think that there is also something about getting to know the animal you are, Mm. you know, like that allows one to do less harm. Like, what do I mean by that? Well, I am a person who I think like is loving and compassionate, wants people to be healthy, uh, does a lot of work in the world, to facilitate that in ways that I can't. Um, I am also someone who really, really works with envy and jealousy and profound senses of unfairness. I'm a true Scorpio. Um, I'm brood. I am obsessive. Um, I, I am deeply uh, vengeful in a part of myself that I have to recognize in order to not be that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I am, this was also part of that year. Like I am the animal I am. I am deeply anxious. I am, um, I am sad and I am lonely and I am joyful. And I am like, all of those things are like, part of the John Kabat-Zinn thing is like saying like, well, what if essential part of it is like, we're not here to cure you. Like we're not here to make it better. What if this is right? What if this is, what if you always are this anxious? okay like how can it just be another energy Mm. Mm -hmm. that changed my life like that was really the thing almost more than anything which was like yeah like how i'm feeling what they would say that i didn't understand at first was how you're feeling right now is how you're feeling right now and Mm. that seemed so but like it's true like how i am feeling right now is how i'm feeling right now one can think of it as like oh because things are going to change but really like you can't even it's like this is how i'm feeling if i don't assign any judgment to it 
right? I am so upset that I'm not, not on the National Book Award long list. Okay. I am really excited about all the people on the National Book Award long list. Okay. Neither of those things are good or bad. Mm-hmm. It's an, that's me being the exact animal I am in that minute. Mm-hmm. I think that there is something about... It is scary, though, to let people be their animal. It is scary to let oneself be the animal they are, to let people see you. I've been talking a lot in interviews lately about envy because I think that's something we don't talk about in the poetry world. I think we're not allowed to talk about it. We're not allowed to say, like, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm thrilled for this person. Man, do I wish I'd gotten the land. Mm -hmm. I have been in this world long enough, and I have seen how the sausage is made. I have held I hold all sorts of positions in this world. Anyone who tells you that winning a Lannan doesn't change your life is lying to you. Maybe it doesn't change your life like on a spiritual way, mm-hmm. but it changes your life. You know what I mean? Like the Stegner changed my life. I have an easier time of it than a lot of people. Why shouldn't someone want that? And also like wanting that doesn't mean that you don't want it for other people. Um, I talk about this publicly because that's me also recognizing like I am this animal. This is who I am. And if I can like look at my whole self, just as I learned to do, like when I was panicking, I was like, I am so anxious. I'm also like eating at this restaurant and loving it. Hmm. And I can try and be as free from judgment about both of those things at the same time. I can be more compassionate with myself and that can help me be more compassionate with other people. And it can also help me like understand that someone can be really unwell and also okay in Mm. front of me, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and, and also that there are ways in which people can unwell, be unwell that are not healthy for me. And I can't be around that, you Mm -hmm. know, but it also helps me recognize that a lot of, a lot of dangers a lot of kinds of dangers that I have been placed in and under have really had to do with power and people wanting to wield power over each other. And that is preventable. And the, the times in my life where people were the most out of control with me, um, I say this is someone who's had a lot of mental illness in my family and like who's, who has my own, you know, my deep anxiety. Um, the moments in which I am, perhaps I shouldn't frame it on other people because then it's easy for people to say, how dare you talk about these people? The moments that I have been the greatest threat to other people are the moments where I am least aware of both what is deeply healthful and deeply unhealthful about myself happening at the same time and where I try and have control over other people's experiences. That is when I am a d- destroyer. And that is when I am really, really sick. Um, that is something I can control if I'm willing to look at myself. Does that make sense? Um, yes, and nobody nobody knows that I have just been sitting here like nodding my my head's almost like a like one of those what are they called wobble dolls? No, like, oh the bobblehead. The bobblehead. Yeah. yeah, I'm like I, yes, it makes um, it makes a really deep sense um, to me, and I'm thinking about you know, so I I really think, I don't know if this is the age of envy in the sense of 
the history history yeah. or our country or whether I, cause I, I can't get enough outside of my own experience or to know whether it has to do with being in our forties. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely think for me, there is a, a very, I can't, I can't untie gender and envy yeah. and rage and my, oh, yeah. and, and the way that power and control and lack of control and, um, is all tied up. Um, but I, I have a very strong feeling that about maybe five, six years ago that like the work started to really be about envy Yeah, in some really, really uncomfortable ways. Yeah. And I think also like, I mean, well, I think, I think age does play a part in it because, and I think age and a certain um, place in in whatever business you're in, right? Mm-hmm. And like, and I do think, I mean, writing poems is not a business, but but the poetry world is. I mean, there's an aspect of it is that is business. It is, and it is certainly run like a business at many levels. And one of the things that I think is most damaging about the poetry world is that it refuses to say that it's run like a business when it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not talking about the making of art. Um, I'm talking about you know, the prize system. I'm talking about publication. I'm talking about things. Those are businesses. Yep. Um, so I think you get to an age where you understand, like you understand it actually does mean something to be given enough money that for two or three years, you didn't have to like work 10 jobs. It like, it really does. And, um, and that's like, it meant something for me to get the Stegner and then the Jones. I had five years. Was I a better poet than like, most of the people I went to Columbia with, I don't think so. I had five years. Like mm-hmm. for me to say to like someone that, that didn't play an integral part, yeah, it's what I did with it. And yeah, I worked hard. And yeah, there are plenty of people who've had the Stegner and the Jones who haven't gone on to have like a kind of lucky life like I had, although perhaps they've had lucky lives in other ways and they didn't want my life. But it would be so disrespectful for me to say, quite frankly, as I sometimes hear people say like, well, it didn't really, you know, like it doesn't really change your life to win something like that. Mm. It's just not true. Yeah. You know? And so I think that, I do think we get to an age where it's like, you just, you see that. And you see also that there are things you haven't gotten that like, that you're probably not going to get. And that like, that is also going to have a kind of impact. So I think like, that's just true. Um, But I do also think that, well, I think a couple of things. I think one thing, I think that envy is something we are not allowed to talk about in our, in the poetry world. Yeah. Like I think in some ways it's a business and in some ways it's run like my grandmother's dinner, like dinner table where it's <laughs> like, I mean, really where it's like, there's it, for something that is essentially like activist in certain ways. It's also, there are so many unwritten rules and there's so much about decorum. I mean, every moment I'm about to end my career in the poetry world and perhaps this is it. But I mean, like I do feel that, you know, and I feel like, a big part of that is shaming people for yeah. feeling bad. You know, like every year, like you'll see, you know, bread loaf day will come or whatever the hell it is. I mean, this is social media, right? It used to be able to be that you could like get your rejection in the privacy of your own home and like be upset for a few days and then see like that someone else you loved got it and be super psyched. But like you did have the day to like eat your ice cream and weep, you know, or just be like, God, dork it you will have something like bread loaf day or Guggenheim day or something like that. And, and within moments of people announcing like who has gotten things, 
there are immediately people coming on shaming people for feeling badly, even if nobody has, you know what I mean, said that they feel badly yet. Right. Now, that's understand. That's discomfort. And that's like all kinds of stuff. But like, that to me is a really, really damaging force. Mm -hmm. Because why? Because it isn't, if I feel badly that I didn't get some monetary grant. Yeah, for five or 10 minutes, it might be the selfish child inside of me, you know, and that's totally cool. Like who's like, you know, and then maybe that some people, there are plenty of people who probably feel totally fine when they don't win things. Although like, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> but like, theoretically what could happen is that if you're allowed to feel that or enough people are allowed to feel that perhaps the next step beyond wow I'm so friggin mad I didn't get the Guggenheim or man I'm mad I didn't get the National Book Award or oh my god why didn't I get the Whiting might be wow I feel really upset that I didn't get this thing because there aren't really other ways in my world to get that amount of time and money. Wow. I'm upset about this because um, it seems like, you know, like my kind of work or my whatever doesn't seem to get rewarded very often. I'm not saying my, but I'm, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, wow. Maybe the next level of that would be, why is it that like, I work at this art form and I try so hard and it seems like the only way a person makes real money in our world is through the granting and prize system that's run by a very small amount of poets. God, like why am I supposed to feel ashamed and shut my mouth about the fact that my economic future is based on the choices of a tiny group of poets. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe this economic system that I'm supposed to just be grateful for because it's all called a prize is really, really fucked up. Yeah. Maybe you could get there. I say this as someone who has been extraordinarily lucky in this world. But like, why is it wrong to let people think that there is also something, there are deep inequities in this system. And why should we, why is the answer often poets shouldn't care about that stuff? Poets should feel ashamed for caring about that stuff. You chose to be a poet. You, you know, you should adjunct. You could be doing this. Adjuncts are treated terribly. You know, so maybe we could, if we let people feel how they needed to feel without immediately shutting those feelings down, we could have an uncomfortable conversation, which is, why don't we some have something like the Screen Actors Guild or the Directors Guild? Why not? Yeah. There aren't, there are not more poets than there are actors. I just don't believe it. You know, there there are absolutely criteria for getting into SAG that you could also use to get into the Poetry Guild of America. There are things that we could do. We, it's it's you know, hard 
to start talking about how to do those things, if every time someone says, this doesn't feel fair to me, it is passed off as ingratitude and jealousy. Yeah. I mean, I one t- very tiny example of this in my own life is that, uh, you know, NYU has an as a union. Yeah. And so, um, and I was there, um, not in the creative writing department, in a different department in 1996 when they were, then they were having the union and it was, there was an enormous amount of um, pressure not to, not to unionize. And it would, it often came in the form of you're lucky to have this job. Right. And, and luck is something we talk about all the time in the poetry world. Oh, you got this grant, which is essentially a gift. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it also keeps us from appreciating how hard someone has to work in order to get the land or to get a national, you know what I mean? Like it does this dual thing where these resentments are raised where it's like, none of this is a gift. It's not a gift. You know what I mean? Like it's also, it's very confusing to figure out, um, how to measure oneself and and then I I completely agree with you that you know I have been really ridiculed and um just any time I have expressed something that to the other person sounds like ambition yeah wow there's a backlash yeah you know you're well why did you become a poet why did you you know oh that's so unattractive oh that's you know oh that's so well you you should you know it's it's demeaning to the art to mix it with you know uh, material concerns or you know and and so it's it's and yet you know two things first of all people need resources yeah in order to create art Right. You can't you can't do it yeah. otherwise. So that's one thing. So to advocate for yourself, to be ambitious, to think about like what do I need, you know, to make this work. Right. But also, um, you know, we put the work out there in the world to reach people. Right. Um, there are lots of different ways. I mean, what I say to people is like, there are lots of different ways to have like to be a poet. Writing a poem and being a, being a poet may or may not be the same thing. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And yeah. like, I don't feel ashamed of saying like, I I am someone who writes poems. I take, my artistic life is entirely my own and deeply private and outside of commerce in a way. But I have worked to have a career as a poet. There's nothing like shameful about that. Like. And I am a I am a person who likes to be good at what I do. And like I am someone who takes it very seriously. And why and there are bars of success within yeah. the poetry world outside of poems and sitting in your room and writing poems. And like you can do that. Like you can do that and you can have books and like but there it is it is simply crazy to say that within the world of poetry in terms of a certain kind of success there are not bars there that you sort of move through i mean i even remember in graduate school people saying like don't worry about um publication and don't send your stuff out to magazine like okay if you don't have a book published a stranger cannot buy it and read it right and that's fine like i absolutely know that there are people who genuinely like are fine just having their poems or want a book of poems but don't care if anyone reads it there right. are really people like that that's awesome yeah but we 
But there is a system in, in American poetry that does have to do with a certain kind of public life and a certain kind of success. And there's nothing wrong with wanting that. And if one wants that, if one wants their books to be read, if one wants um, to reach a certain number of people, if one wants to be in conversation, then it helps to get certain things. And, and it, and there is a kind of, um, I think in many ways, a pretty screwed up hierarchy, but like there's a system. And I think if we aren't willing to A, acknowledge that system, then we can't question it and dismantle it. Okay, so let's imagine, because you have all of my votes, mm -hmm. that you are the president of the poetry world. Oh my God. I really think you should be, first of all. Well. So, so now you are. Uh -huh. in my in my world uh -huh. so I don't know like what what's the first thing you would do to dismantle this I would figure out a way to get a union uh -huh. I mean I really would like I would figure out a way I know it's hard and I would we would have to figure you know you'd have to figure out you know how do you do this and where's the money I mean I understand um but I feel like if people if like the majority of people in the poetry world are willing to pay upwards of a thousand dollars to go to AWP like come on now mm. and I mean, that's a lot of money that goes into AWP. Yeah. Like, if everyone took $200, everyone who goes to AWP, what what happens? Like, 20, how many people? Like, 10,000 people went last Some time? Some crazy If thing, everybody yeah. put, took 200 out of their 1,000 that they spent and, like, put that towards something, I mean, I don't know. This is, like, but I guess, like, A, I wouldn't want to be president of anything, but I would like to build a world where there didn't have to be presidents. Like, I would... Although I think that the I think there would be something be interest I think there is something interesting about the idea of a poet laureate for poets. Mm -hmm. I do think there's something about that. I think we don't have a poet laureate, and why not? It doesn't have to be that that person is leading or legislating, but it could be that that is a person whose job it is to talk about the lives of poets and lives of artists. And I mean, that's what I tried to do at LARB is I tried to make a world there where as much as people could like talk about books, people could get a sense of like what it was to be a poet in the world, mm -hmm. you know, because it's great and it's also hard. And it's, it's also a world in which like your economy is like veiled and you're not allowed to talk about it. But like, anyway... So I guess the first thing I would do is like, it's not much different than what I would want to do for the whole country, which is like, I would want to make sure that every single poet had good dental care. Mm. I really like, that's huge. The number of poets I know who have like dental issues because it's really expensive. And like most people, even if you have good medical insurance, you don't have dental insurance. Like, this is the reason I get crazy when people like get upset at people for being upset about not winning stuff. The number of people I know who would like to win something so they could get like their teeth taken care of is huge. And like, that's human. Like, and that is also an abomination. Like the idea that like people want a lily so that they can like get their teeth fixed. Like there is something toxically wrong with our community. So I guess like if I were pie in the sky, if I won like $4 billion, the first thing I would do would all, dental care for all poets, mental health care for all poets, um, some kind of like health care for all poets that wasn't reliant upon like where you were working, like you know, um, just so that people were healthier physically, right? Um, and then I think, because then 
like things like I'm not saying that the granting system is bad. I'm not saying that like prizes are bad, but they are bad when like it's not the same as being a lawyer or a doctor where certainly there are prizes and things and grants and things. But it is true that you can like be a really good doctor and go into a town and it doesn't matter if the top like 10 doctors in the world don't think you're a great doctor. You mm. can have a really, really successful life. You can be really wealthy. That's actually not true in the poetry world. You can you can be very successful within yourself. You can have your readers. Like it, everything depends on one's um, definition of success. But there is a kind of money you cannot make mm -hmm. for the most part. You know, maybe if you're, um, you know, when you're Mary Oliver or something, but that's a different kind of fame. And like, notice how poets talk about Mary Oliver, mm -hmm. you know, um, who I do love. Um, I guess that, I guess that, and I, I do think about this, like, I guess that what I would do is I would try to make a world in which like the prizes and, and the grants and stuff were fine, but they weren't everything mm -hmm. and they weren't, and because they weren't anything, everything, the people who doled them out didn't like, weren't so important. And I guess the other thing I would do if I could be the, the president of something like poet, the poetry world, um, is I would make it that there were no more anonymous boards. There were no more anonymous prizes. There was no more, um, you know, people, and I sit on some of those things. And what they say is this is to protect the judges. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't need protection from my choices. If I don't feel comfortable about people being upset at me because they didn't get something, then I shouldn't be on that panel. I should be able to like, I should be able to like, and like, and I sit on panels like this. So, I mean, for people who are listening and are like, well, you don't understand. I do understand, you know, mm. and there's just no reason for things to be secret. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a, I think that there's a, a way in which secrecy works in our world in relation to money and power in poetry that is really, excuse my language, FCC or whatever, is really fucked up. And, um, and so that's what I would also do, like in a magic world where I was like able to magically change things. There would just be no more prizes that we didn't know who the judges were, that we didn't know what the process was, that we didn't know, like how every step of it was working. Yeah. I mean, this is so tangentially related to it, but I went to this podcast conference and the guy who basically invented the technology to make podcasts um, did not make money off of it because yeah. he decided, I mean, he made money, but he, he decided it, the most important thing to him was to not have it be associated with any company yeah. to have it be available equally to everyone um yeah. and you know i mean it's i'm not the right person to describe the the way that yeah. technology works um but i love um i do feel like this um like i love that you said like fcc like there's yeah. no one controlling right. this space in a way that is not true for publishing yeah. Um, you know, print publishing and other kinds of like broadcasting. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, it's one, it's, it does, I do love that about this, that it feels like a free space. And, and I feel like, um, I love the written word and the printed yeah. word, obviously, but I think that we're, we could have, um, more freedom and more, um, anarchy, 
yeah. with if we if we let go in a way of some of our kind of antiquated attachments to copyright to to you know to 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 this to the structures of power to the yeah. you know to t- certainly to the tenure system to the I mean come on like yeah. all of these institutions that are you know really not um, we're all kind of like buying into them with the hope that we're going to make it you know, to the yeah. top, you know, or to the middle even. But, you know, if we all kind of, this is kind of like the dream of a union, yeah. you know, but, you know, or a guild, like to realize like, wait, these structures are inherently oppressive. And so it's not about like, you know, believing in the American dream, yeah. you know, or the dream of the university as the, you know, the haven for uh, poets. Um, but it's about realizing the way in which, you know, these systems are really, they do protect some people and they, yeah. they offer the only protection for some people, um, but they are largely, you know, problematic, exclusive, and, uh, and, and, it's, and invisibly so right. in, in so many ways. And that to me is the real danger, right? I mean, I guess the other thing I would do if I was really like, could, you know, do whatever, but would be like, you know, really work I mean we need to get adjuncts better paid you know if poetry adjuncts could be better paid if they had health care if they had dental care I really do think that things and if these prizes were transparent I do think something essentially and I also think the poetry that was made would be would continue to grow and be interesting I mean I think a lot of interesting things would happen artistically um but no I mean I agree with you I, I think um I think that like it's such the poetry world is incredible and wonderful in so many ways and it also runs itself in a lot of ways like the court system and there's a difference between um there's a difference between wanting change and wanting to dismantle the power structure that is very different and um you know i think we don't have those conversations enough about like what it actually is to to be a poet, not like the rarefied romantic thing of like writing our poems. We all know, or many of us, I would say, writing poems is a kind of sacred act, you know, even if we say like, I don't believe in sacred acts, but it, whatever, it's, it's, it is something that is entirely our own um, in a world that where very few things are entirely our own anymore. Um, but gosh, like we're really, really nervous to, to talk about. I mean, and people are, there are, you know, like poets are really scared of other poets. And I'm not, that's not me. I'm not saying that lightly. Like mm-hmm. people are really, the number of people that I hear talking about, some poet has the ability, if I do this, this poet will ruin my life. If I do this, this poet will ruin my career. Mm-hmm. The idea that there, I mean, I think that probably there aren't many people who have that kind of power, but even the idea that there is a perception that like you could say something or do something that would slow your career by five or 10 years is like, that is deeply unsettling. I mean, it's incredibly unsettling. And I think it is doubly, triply, quadruply upsetting, um, I guess I I was going to say for poets because so many of us um, in various ways feel like we have come out of a place where 
some aspect of ourselves have been marginalized yes. and and been told not yes. to say something yes. or not to acknowledge something or not to look at yourself to look at others to to uh, uh, to to risk yeah. you know uh, offense um, provocation um, being wrong yeah. you know being impolite um, and so I think that um, you know the one of the things I love so much about poetry um, is that so much of it is about breaking, you know, that social yeah. contract or um, those, you know, pushing back against those expectations. But then to have the career part of it be so steeped in that kind of fear is is just seems like it's really crazy making. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think that it is a mental health issue in poetry. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say that, like, if I can be on my theoretical soapbox for yeah. another moment. I think it's a mental health issue. I think it's a mental and physical health issue. And I think that there are a lot of people who are um, deeply damaged by the system and deeply damaged. And, and I am so sick of the buck up mentality and, like, they're not tough enough or, like, you know, stop being so sensitive. Get over it. Man, like or, you know, do the work, which is the, like, I mean, I don't, I want to, I want a Stegner and a Jones fellowship and I had the Rona Chaffee and I won the Bernard F. Con I can go on and on. I don't get to tell anybody to do the work. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, let me tell you something. Like I am so privileged. Right. And so I think that there's something about the ways in which we shame people for questioning the system because when people talk about being upset about admissions policies or prizes or you know all of that stuff or jobs like yes part of it is the little animal inside them the child the like why not me okay fine but it is also true that like there is there is something to it in which someone is trying to speak to an inequity and it would be one thing if it was just like one person feeling that way and then we could be like yeah man that ungrateful so-and-so but it's not one person yeah if you really got dug down deep into it one would find that it is many 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 people and good people and smart people and people who are also able to feel deeply happy for other people sure it is hard on the emotional and physical health of someone to have to think the only way, like people can, and then people will say things like, well, get a different kind of job. Well, maybe someone doesn't want to have three different kinds of jobs. Like that the only way to have the time to write that book is to win this thing that will give you the year. And oh, or get this residency oh, I'm sorry, this residency doesn't allow children. You mm -hmm. know, like, there's a lot of ways that we shut so many doors. And if we're not going to, if we aren't willing to have those uncomfortable conversations, and, we're, and what we do every time is we throw the giant, like, sort of this huge thing called gratitude in people's faces and say, you're ungrateful. Like... How many times in so many of our lives, in other situations, have we been called ungrateful when we knew we were not ungrateful? Mm -hmm. Like, we were hurting, and we wanted that recognized. You know, I think 
I don't know. I'm going on and on, but I, I, I think it's a very um, beautiful moment in American poetry in some ways, and I also think it's like a, it's a pretty hard moment, and it's a moment when we could really think about it and make some changes, um, in ways that would maybe be hard for a lot of a lot of us. You know, I speak as someone with real privilege in this world, um, but might in the long term make for healthier people, which in the end would make for a more, I bet, uh, increasingly interesting poetics. What if your poetics weren't at all ever tied to like a kind of market? You know? mm-hmm. What if you never had to say the thing about like the 10-year book, which is a real thing, like people being like, well, I don't know, I don't like that book that much, but it was my 10-year book. Mm. You know, I don't feel this way about this book. Like I feel very lucky it took me a decade to write this book, but I was definitely feeling like I was, I was definitely nervous and I I definitely for the first time understood people saying like you know oh that book that's my 10-year book Mm. that's a real thing you know and um what if it wasn't tied what if it didn't have to be tied to that right um when I was like five six seven maybe seven um my mom was recording um an album um, of stories and she would take me with her to the recording studio. And so there was a recording booth and she wanted me to sing um, on the very last story. It's a Hans Christian Andersen story. And um, so every time it was like my turn to sing, I would totally freeze up. Um, She, um, we tried a few times and the sound people were getting frustrated Mm -hmm. and my mom said, turn off all the lights. Um, and so I did it in the dark and it was totally fine. Like, cause they couldn't see me, you know? And, um, so in the back of my mind this whole time, I've been thinking about like, how can I ask you to read one of the breath poems? Like how, what would I, what would, what? maybe you would just feel fine doing it in this space. But if you didn't without any pressure at all, like would there be something that would be similar to like turning off the lights or me looking away? I feel like what we've just done would allow me to do it. Interesting. Because I feel like A, it's starting to get dark in here. It is really getting dark. (laughs) But also because like... um, you know, I've made the decision with this book and in interviews to just be honest, mm. you know. Also because I think this is a moment where people are really afraid of being honest and really afraid of call, like being called out or being afraid. I have so many poets I know who say, I know the moment's going to come on social media where like, you know. So I've opened myself to just like, okay, like I'm just going to be myself. And I'm also willing to take responsibility for everything I say. And I'm willing to like be wrong. And I'm also willing to like take whatever comes. And so, um, I feel like I've been really as honest as I am capable of being. And so I would do that. Do you want Great. to hear? Yes. In, uh, this is called in the darkness of the house of pleasure in the darkness of the house of pleasure. The band leader is indicative or nothing or everything, depending on the day. (gasps) Boring and selfish. (gasps) It's a blue god, depending on the day. (gasps) Brings me bouquet of herbs. 
<gasps> spicked while I was sleeping or <gasps> forgets my name entirely. What I call Faith is also called the band leader. Sometimes we go to the movies. Sometimes we hold hands and eat popcorn all the way home. It's terribly boring or it's the epitome of joy, depending. Sometimes the canyons echo through the windows and I'm awake to hear it because it's kept me sleepless with whose tongue. Sometimes it's 4 a.m. and I don't know where is except I hear whose laughter coming from another house where another girl is wide awake. Is the band leader a man, a woman, Am I? These are questions that don't matter to anyone. Once the band leader was indigo and rising beneath the mulberries. Once I saw who's part the chest of a stag and walk out from inside, glistening and drunk with light. Depending on the day, I am on my hands and knees and begging for who's, or I am unsure if ah exists. What art is an elm in every season and also is the firmament. I count seven stars between whose shoulder blades and three inside whose navel. And in whose eyes I see nothing. They are so dark they refuse whatever light I offer. And yet we lay beside the stream on heated stones and turned whose head to look at me and I thought, my Lord, this is love. And yet, I have no proof. Indeed, that very night left me for a lion. Once I watched who's come toward me for three whole blocks. It's a thing I'll think about forever. Once I saw who's wear a peach dress, <gasps> lit a rock on fire in the depths of winter as a testament to whose fortitude. These are miracles. The stone and the dress and the streets between us that gave me time to watch as <gasps> grew large and still so delicate before me. Some days the phone is ravenous with whose voice, though now it's mostly silent. The ranch lands are given back to the hawks, where once we rode hard to beat the train's passing. It matters to no one that the bouquet was made of lemon balm, witch hazel, of rosemary with its bluest flowers made manifest. But I thought, my lord, and I thought I would give anything. Wow. So, so many things happened. <laughs> um, the first time that you inhaled, the computer sent a message to me that has never happened <laughs> during a recording um, in which it said, would you like to continue without feedback protection? It was very confused by what was happening. And I was like, yes, I would like to continue without feedback protection. Um, so I told the computer that. Then the phone rang, which it, this phone never rings. I don't even know who it was. Um, I don't know what's happening here. I just think everyone's here. Yeah. 
Um, this is the this is now officially the longest one I've ever recorded. <laughs> Maybe we should stop. Yeah. This has been episode 42 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, and James Ciano. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Music composed and performed by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Design work by Eitan Darwish. Thank you to Persea, to Gabrielle Calvacaresi, to the University of California Press, to all our patrons, and to you, listener. Take care.